0: So good evening. I hope you've had an interesting day of practice, exploring and enjoying. So a couple of nights ago, seems like maybe a long time, but it was just a couple of nights ago, I introduced this metaphor of the two wings of awakening being wisdom and compassion and i mentioned that in the context of that metaphor compassion is a kind of umbrella term for all skillful states of heart and mind including the four brahmavihara practices that i gave a brief kind of tour of being kindness or metta compassion or karuna appreciative joy mudita and equanimity upeka And this afternoon, Dara led us in a beautiful exploration of the heart quality of metta. And if we had the luxury of more time, it would be lovely to linger in that locale for a bit longer. But because we don't have a huge abundance of time, and because most of you have done at least some metta practice before, tonight I would like to move on to focus more directly on compassion itself. Because in some ways, due to its direct connection with suffering, for some people, this can be quite a challenging one of the four brahma-viharas. And yet, at the same time, compassion is also a very powerful support for insight practice. Due to, for the same reason, due to its direct connection with suffering, or dukkha, before going there, I'd like to just briefly touch back into the interrelationship between these four Brahma Viharas. So, as I mentioned the other day, Metta is the foundation of all of them, and so if it's taught, if they're taught at all, Metta is usually the one we hear the most about. But one of the drawbacks I've noticed with that, in a way, overemphasi- overemphasis on Metta and the neglecting of the other three is that it can give the mistaken impression that metta or loving-kindness is supposed to be the default response to every situation. So some people develop a misguided belief that being a good Buddhist, in quotation marks, whatever a good Buddhist means, means never experiencing anger or jealousy or resentment or shame or anxiety and so on. So when these emotions do arise, there can be the tendency to try and misuse metta to sort of get rid of them. And when we do this, the loving-kindness practice becomes a sort of a superficial salve uh, that we try to cover over the festering wound of our hurt, our anger, our fear and distress. But it doesn't actually cure those things. So perhaps I should just speak for myself and acknowledge that this was true for me early on in my own practice. There'd be times on retreat where I'd find myself mechanically reciting the metaphrases phrases such as, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace, over and over and over. And when I looked more deeply, what I was actually saying was, I hate this. Get it away from me. Why isn't this over yet? Somebody make it stop and I was actually conditioning aversion. I wasn't really in the terrain of loving-kindness at all. So we can misuse metta to try to distance ourselves from our own painful emotions. And if we're not familiar with the other brahma-vihara practices, we might also try to apply metta in circumstances where one of the other brahmaviharas would be more appropriate and where actually metta is not the wisest response. So I sometimes use a a common example. People will say things to me like, I've been trying to do metta for my ex-partner who I've been in a custody battle with for five years, and it's not working, I still hate them. And so if that kind of situation comes up, I'll often ask, well, have you tried practicing compassion, specifically self-compassion? And the usual response I get is either confusion, blankness, or outright horror at even the idea of orienting to self-compassion. And again, coming back to my own practice, it's probably true that early on, if I'd received that suggestion, I might have had a similar response. Because although I had an intellectual understanding of the value of compassion, I had no idea how to actually cultivate it, and particularly not in relation to myself. And I don't think that this is my own unique shortcoming. I'm a product of a culture, of cultures, of societies that really don't value compassion or any of the heart qualities very much. In fact, if we look at the world right now in so many locations, it can feel like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion. And we seem to be reaping the results of this undervaluing of compassion on a nationwide or international scale. And I think, too, partly because of our dominant culture's orientation towards perfectionism and competitiveness For many of us, the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. And I'll come back to that point later in the talk. But for now, I just want to go into this quality of what karuna actually is in a bit more depth. So as I mentioned the other night, compassion is what flowers when metta or goodwill comes into contact with dukkha, with suffering. And this term dukkha is a very broad term that includes all kinds of unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, and suffering. So compassion is the willingness to turn towards this suffering, to meet it with kindness and care. And this is an important point where possible to help the suffering release so that we can experience more ease and peace, and freedom. Compassion, then, is a very powerful resource in our quest to find the heart of wisdom, to find true freedom, or supreme refuge, to use another traditional Buddhist term. So again, back on opening night, Dara read part of a sutta, part of a discourse that points in this direction that highlights a difference between inner and outer refuge, inner and outer safety and freedom. I'd like to read it again as a reminder in a translation by Gil Fransdell. It says, People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from all suffering. But when someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees, with right insight, the four noble truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the eightfold path leading to the end of suffering, then this is the secure refuge. This is the supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from all suffering. So it's pretty clear from that sutta that the heart of true refuge is an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Because this is the understanding that leads to ease, peace, and freedom. And we might wonder, well, how? How? How does it do that? It does it by changing our relationship to suffering. So as you heard in the Sutta quote, by knowing suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, the path that leads to the end of suffering, one is released from all suffering which might sound like a whole lot of suffering before we actually get to the end of suffering, which is one of the problems I have with the Four Noble Truths. So it's important to keep in mind that everything we're exploring tonight is in the service of non-suffering. In other words, ease, happiness, peace, freedom. But this deep freedom doesn't come about Simply by wishing for it. It comes about through developing these two wings to awakening together, deepening wisdom and com- cultivating compassion equally. So, coming back to the wis- wisdom wing just for a few moments, I'd like to go into those four noble truths a little bit so that we might see them with, quote, right insight and find that supreme refuge of nibbana, awakening, complete freedom. So, a little bit of a memory test. First noble truth is anybody? There is dukkha, there is suffering. Thank you. And again, just to remember this word that's usually translated as suffering in Pali, dukkha, has a much broader range of meanings in the Pali than the English word might suggest. So we can hear suffering and think, well, I'm living in a first world country, you know, I have things that aren't great, but I can't really say I'm suffering. So we might not immediately connect with this first noble truth. But elsewhere in the teachings, I'd like to read you this, one of the Buddha's definitions of dukkha, that's in the expanded version of the first noble truth from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, where the Buddha is quoted as saying, Now this, practitioners is the noble truth of stress. So Tanasaro translates dukkha as stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Okay, so we could probably spend the rest of our lives exploring that paragraph, but I just want to highlight that um, pretty obvious birth, aging, and death stressful. Having to be with what we don't like, having to be separated from what we do like, Certainly not getting what we want is stressful. And elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha used this same word, dukkha, in relation to more subtly unpleasant aspects of experience. So he talked about dukkha as being one of the three universal characteristics that are common to everything we experience. And I touched into these briefly the other day, where I translated anicca, dukkha, and anatta as impermanent, imperfect and impersonal. So because all experience is impermanent, because nothing lasts, it's unreliable. It's not capable of providing lasting satisfaction. So in this sense, even pleasant experiences have this quality of dukkha. Because before long, they pass away, and then we're left chasing after the next hit of pleasantness. So the Pali word dukkha covers a very broad range of different types of suffering, from the most extreme anguish on one end, through to just that subtle, slightly existential sense of discomfort or unease. So again, because we're born as human beings, because we have vulnerable bodies, vulnerable hearts, vulnerable minds, we are going to experience some degree of dukkha. That's just a fact. But on top of that basic dukkha, we usually add a whole pile of extra dukkha in the form of our reactivity to it. So it's possible some of you are even experiencing a trace of this right now. Perhaps noticing a trace of resistance not suffering again. Didn't we hear about this on the last retreat and the retreat before that and the retreat before that? Just looking at the amount of experience you all have, some of you in this room have probably listened to dozens of talks about dukkha. So perhaps there's a tinge of impatience or frustration or boredom or restlessness or a subtle or not so subtle kind of a recoil from exploring this theme of suffering, even though, again, the point of it is to understand how to free ourselves from it. And this is because, as I mentioned earlier, our nervous systems are hardwired to have a bias towards the unpleasant more than the pleasant. So the neuroscience research that talks about the mind's inherent negativity bias And Rick Hansen's catchy phrase that our minds are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. So what's unpleasant tends to stick, or we tend to cling to it, and what's pleasant tends to slide right off. Sometimes we don't even notice it. So the other day we were training in noticing uh, this feeling tone, the Vedana of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, at the six sense doors and just practicing, not adding our habitual reactivity to it. And we can do that to some extent on retreat, but in the midst of everyday life, when our mindfulness is much less stable, it's that much harder or it's that much easier to get caught in our unconscious habits of clinging and resisting. But with practice and training on retreat, we can learn how to develop a more spacious relationship to these sense contacts and to release the suffering, the clinging, the resisting, and so on. And this is where compassion comes in, as a very powerful resource that helps support a more wise relationship to dukkha. So the Pali word karuna, It's usually translated as compassion. In English, that word literally means feeling with. It's the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain or to our own pain. But for most people, this is not the usual way we relate to dukkha. It's pretty counterintuitive to move towards suffering rather than away from it. And we might think, wait a minute, This isn't what I signed up for. I thought the point of spiritual practice is to experience bliss. Suffering hurts. Why would I want to go there? Well, coming back to the wisdom again, one reason is that inevitably there are, there will be times in life when pain, when dukkha is unavoidable. So it's a good idea to practice training in meeting small difficulties now, so that we can sort of build that compassion and wisdom muscle before we really need it. So one analogy for this process of turning towards pain is it's a bit like swimming in the sea when one of those king waves or monster waves is coming towards us. Our instinct is usually to try to run away or swim away from that wave. But if we do that, we usually end up getting dumped. So it's actually better to turn and face the wave and then dive under it just before it breaks. It might be turbulent for a few seconds, but we usually come out the other side in better shape than if we'd been slammed into the sand. So not all of you, perhaps, have had the experience of swimming in the ocean. So another analogy I sometimes use is like when we're driving the car in winter conditions. So if it's wet or icy and the car starts to skid, all the experts say that we need to steer in the direction of the skid to go into it in order to come back to balance. And again, that's counter our usual habitual response, which is to jerk the steering wheel in the opposite direction, and then we risk spinning out. So, with both of those analogies, what's clear, I think, is that it takes courage and it takes presence of mind, it takes mindfulness, to stay steady in the face of suffering and to not run run from it. But the more we train in this, the more we develop our capacity to stay with difficulties, So this is a practice. And how do we actually do that? How do we practice compassion as a Brahmavihara meditation? Well, in the insight tradition that we're part of, it's usually practiced similar to metta by silently reciting phrases using words that evoke this capacity to turn towards suffering with kindness. And in my own practice, I've used a set of four phrases that I'll share with you tonight. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. So I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. So we can shorten that into aware, care, release, peace. And you might get a sense that the first two phrases can help to show up any resistance to being with the pain, while the second to offer a reminder that all of this practice is oriented to moving beyond pain. So the first phrase, I'm aware of this pain, when I first came up with it, it was a kind of a test to see, is that true? Is there a willingness to acknowledge it? And sometimes the answer was absolutely not, (laughs) no way. But even being able to see that resistance was useful because unless I could recognize the resistance, I couldn't do anything to soften it. And depending on the intensity of the resistance, if it's super strong, then wisdom might discern that actually this is not the right time to be trying to face into the pain. Perhaps I need to do something else that will soothe and strengthen the heart and mind. And then when I'm feeling stronger and more balanced, I can come back to the compassion practice. So then the second phrase, I care about this pain is also a kind of a test. Is that true? Do I care about it? Or do I just want it to go away, get rid of it? And again, if we meet resistance, we need to approach this capacity to care very gently. Perhaps we almost bargain with ourselves. We deliberately turn our attention to the pain for 10 seconds, that's all. And then after 10 seconds, move the awareness towards something that's either neutral or pleasant so that we don't get overwhelmed by the pain. And then later on, we might touch in again, this time for 12 seconds, strengthening the immune system gradually. On the other hand, again, if there's a very clear lack of care, or perhaps even hostility to the pain, then again, it might be time, not the right time. So we might literally or metaphorically bow. Okay, let me just return to the simplicity of mindfulness of breathing for a while, or go for a walk, or have a cup of tea, and then come back later. The point is to do whatever we choose to do with as much awareness as possible. So, as I said, we're trying to gradually expand our capacity to be with dukkha, whereas trying to force ourselves out of our comfort zones is a subtle form of violence, and it's pretty much totally counterproductive. So if we do find ourselves in that terrain of forcing, it's much better to take what I call a strategic withdrawal and to move away from the dukkha for a while. Sometimes people think this is cheating or that they're missing a valuable opportunity to be with dukkha. But actually, the chances are it'll probably come back at some point before too much longer. So there probably will be another opportunity to work with it when you're feeling a bit more resourced. So the third phrase, may this pain release, is a reminder that compassion practice is not intended to be masochistic suffering for the sake of suffering. It's uh, true that compassion is sometimes presented as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain. But this is one aspect of the practice. It's not just empathy. If all we're doing is feeling fully with another person's pain, this can lead to empathy burnout. So what supports compassion practice from leading to overwhelm is that it's oriented to helping release that pain whenever possible, wherever possible. So for me, compassion is a has a sort of quality of listening to it. I'm listening to my own being. I'm listening to my capacity to stay present. I'm listening to the outer circumstances, too. And later on in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion was made more explicit in the archetypal image of Kuan Yin, the embodiment of compassion. And in the Zen tradition, she's sometimes referred to as she who hears the cries of the world. And it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. And it points back to mindfulness as a practice of listening. So in some of the individual meetings, I've been emphasizing this approach of settling back and receiving experience, and when appropriate, responding rather than reacting. So, just to make the point that this receptivity is not passive, because out of that deep listening, wisdom helps us to intuit the skillful response. In fact, some of the images of Kuan Yin you may be familiar with, they show her sitting in a particular position. She's uh, often shown sitting like this. So you might notice half of her body is in a meditation sitting posture. The other half is poised, ready to spring into action. So she's really embodying this uh, balance between poise and readiness to respond. So in my own explorations of compassion, there was a significant turning point that came when I realized that there's none of the brahma practices are about trying to manufacture a particular emotion or conjure up a particular mind state. It's actually more about listening to what's already there. And what's already there may feel very faint and distant, but as we keep attuning into the sort of signature qualities of each of these Brahma-viharas, we learn to recognize them and learn to amplify them. So again, just to touch back into the wisdom, with this invitation to for the pain to release, as we all know, there are times in life, there are situations in life where depending on the pain we're working with, there might not be anything that we can do to end the pain at that point in time. For example, if we're experiencing the pain of a relationship breakup, it might not be wise to wish to get back together with that partner, but we could acknowledge the possibility of being relieved of the suffering of rejection or longing or self-blame and so on. And just holding that as a possibility can give us a moment or two of space, of relief. And the recognition that at some point the dukkha will change might not be in the time frame we hope for, but because of the truth of impermanence, at some point there will be a release of that dukkha. So the fourth compassion phrase, may I know peace, reinforces this possibility of change. And at times it can be skillful to consciously imagine ourselves living without that pain and stress, distress and suffering. What might it feel like to truly know peace? So we try to visualize that as fully as we can to come into our bodies, our hearts, our minds and see if we can get a very immediate felt sense of how peace might be experienced in any particular situation. So even the imaginative understanding of peace can give us a small taste of that that helps us to attune in that direction. Now it's possible some of you are thinking, well, that sounds easy, (laughs) but you don't know what's going on in my life right now. So just to emphasize that um, all of these Brahma-vihara practices are sometimes referred to euphemistically as purification practices, which basically means that they're designed to show us what gets in the way of the different qualities. So for example, if we sit down to try and cultivate compassion and find ourselves wriggling with restlessness or lost in fantasy or bored out of our brains or completely shut down and dissociated, see if you can remember that that is part of the practice. Because if we can approach these kind of obstacles with kind curiosity instead of self-judgment, then those hindrances can release and the wisdom and compassion becomes even stronger. So, one very common obstacle to experiencing compassion is fear. Because, as I mentioned earlier, we are hardwired to avoid experiences that are painful and potentially life threatening. So, it's not surprising that we might have this deep and instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And as a caveat here, the reason that there are two wings to awakening is that compassion needs to be supported by wisdom. So we need to cultivate clear seeing or insight to understand when our fear is just a habitual knee-jerk reaction and when it's actually a wise fear that's keeping out of genuine danger. So with practice and perhaps some degree of trial and error, we learn to distinguish between genuine compassion, and what's sometimes called idiot compassion or foolish compassion, which is a little harsh. But it's when we get caught in habit patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time to our own detriment. And again, the wisdom is saying that if compassion is harming ourselves while benefiting others, there's a piece of the equation that's not right there. So we need to include ourselves equally in the non-harming and the compassion. Otherwise, we can get stuck in patterns of enabling and codependence and so on. So wisdom helps us to discern when to say no and when to say yes. But the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering, paradoxically, it's to make us more open to it, more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, we can't also open to the 10,000 joys either. So part of this training in compassion helps us to open to the full spectrum of our life experiences. And again, also to recognize to honor those times when it is appropriate to close the heart and to stay safe. So a few years ago, I was exploring this idea of the heart opening and closing, and I shared with some of you last time I was here this image of the sea anemone. You know those little uh, blobby jelly creatures that live in rock pools? So when I was a little child, I lived in Scotland, and on family holidays we would go to the beach and go exploring the rock pools at low tide. And I got totally fascinated by these blobs of red and brown and orange jelly with all their translucent tentacles. And my father showed me how if you touch them, the tentacles would withdraw, and you would get just this smooth blob of jelly. So as a five-year-old, I thought this was magic. But I wanted to know why, and I found out later that the sea anemone withdraws their tentacles in order to stay safe. But when the tentacles are drawn in, they can't feed. So at some point, they have to take the risk of opening the tentacles again. And so there's this rhythm of staying safe and feeding, staying safe and feeding. And I thought, in some ways, that's like the human heart. We need to know when to take the risk of opening and being fed, and when we actually do need to stay safe for some period of time. So some degree of vulnerability is inevitable, it's a part of life. And there's actually a growing body of social science research that recognizes the link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. So some of you probably know the work of Brene Brown, for example. She's a professor of sociology at uh, Houston University, and she spent over a decade exploring vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and shame. And although as far as I know she's not a meditator, the conclusions that she comes to sound a lot like this um, process that we've been exploring here. And in this quote that I'm about to give, she does actually name Pema children. So I'd like to read you just a short extract from that interview. She says, if you have a Petri dish, one of those glass lab dishes, and you have shame in there, the pervasive feeling of not being good enough, not being whatever enough, not thin enough, not rich enough, popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough. It only needs three things to survive in this little Petri dish and to actually grow exponentially and creep into every corner and crevice of your life. Those three things are secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with some empathy, you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone. Your shame dies. Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your own darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she says, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion can absolutely kill us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing pain kills people every single day. We're the most obese, in-debt, medicated, workaholic, addicted adults in human history. Pain won't kill you. Numbing pain kills people every minute of every day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort, you practice being uncomfortable. So I like that she points out that empathy is what makes the difference. In her words, if you can share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, this is what helps the shame to release. And to me, what she's describing there is compassion. And In the context of a retreat, we can learn how to do this for ourselves through this process of befriending and soothing ourselves. In some ways, to practice relating to ourselves as we would a good friend who is going through hard times. I think most of us have at least some capacity to sit with someone who's in pain and offer them kindness and compassion. So can we take this same process and turn it back onto we ourselves? So again, we can think of this practice as being about listening, listening to our own pain, equally with everyone else's. And in some ways I think of self-compassion as being a kind of a universal solvent for working with difficult mind states. And in many of our individual meetings I've been um, inviting you to try to stay with any painful emotions that come up. And as well as using mindfulness to simply know what they are, at times to turn towards those emotions with care, perhaps even appreciation, because ultimately these painful situations help us to strengthen both wisdom and compassion if we can meet them with the right attitude. But again, just to acknowledge that self-compassion in particular can be very challenging Partly because self-aversion and self-loathing seem to be so widespread these days, so this invitation to practice patience and kindness towards ourselves can be very unfamiliar terrain. A few years ago, I read an interview with a scientist, a psychologist who was has been working in this field of self-compassion, and I'd like to read you part of what he wrote because it it just highlights this so clearly. He says, commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, not deserved. This usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. An exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable, and something that will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So for many people, this invitation into self-compassion involves coming into contact with some very deep conditioning. And in my own experience and working with many students, it sometimes feels like we would rather do anything than actually move in this direction. And one of the common themes that comes up is that uh, sometimes people will say, well, I just can't find phrases that feel authentic and meaningful to me. And once I was working with somebody who was really struggling with this concept, and she said she just couldn't find anything that felt real. So we worked together a little bit to see what actually would be authentic for her. And what we came up with was something like, may I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to move in the general direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. So it was kind of quite a bit way off at arm's length. But even that much is better than nothing. And as we start to familiarize ourselves with that, it can become easier. So we can be creative with the phrases we use. We don't even have to use phrases. As Dara was saying, you know, we all have different ways of orienting, and so some people are visual, some are very embodied. Even just to put a hand on one's heart, just to acknowledge, oh, that is painful, okay. And in that moment of physically touching into one's own vulnerability, there can be a pulse of compassion. Taking a moment to stop and to breathe in and to breathe out Opening up just a few millimeters of space around the pain is an act of compassion. So one of the challenges, though, when we are in pain is that it tends to collapse us into our own small worlds and to get very identified with our own difficulties and to become alone in our pain. So if we notice this happening, sometimes it can be a a useful strategy to consciously go against that. And I've shared a simple example from my own life, which some of you may have heard, apologies in advance, that it's not a very beautiful example. In fact, it's quite a little bit gross, (laughs) but perhaps you can relate to it even so. It comes from a time a few years ago when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge, and I'd been experiencing a pretty chronic health condition, so I was prescribed three different sets of really powerful antibiotics that I was supposed to take together. And I'd been told that they could cause intense nausea, but usually I have a pretty strong stomach, so I thought oh, I'll be fine. But on the first day of taking them, from the minute I woke up until all through the day until I went to sleep at night, I just felt like I was about to vomit. So it was just almost constant nausea, and at times I did actually vomit. And I tried to keep meditating through all the discomfort, but pretty much the whole day was, when am I going to throw up again? Where's the nearest bathroom? Is there a waste paper bin? And my whole world just shrank to being about me and my stomach, which got pretty claustrophobic So after a few days of just feeling this sense of me in my stomach, I decided to try and think about all the other people in the world who in that same moment might be experiencing nausea. So I brought to mind all the pregnant women who were going through morning sickness and all the sailors out at sea in storms who might be experiencing seasickness and all the people who are going through chemotherapy and unable to eat, and all the people with hangovers just wishing they had never done that, and I imagine millions of people all over the world vomiting together in unison, (laughs) and surprisingly that sort of moment of solidarity with all the sick people (laughs) brought some real lightness, even happiness, a sense of connection. So it's a slightly gross example, but the basic principle is that when I was able to see clearly that my pain wasn't actually mine, wasn't mine alone, and that many people around the world would be suffering in similar ways, it helped me to understand the truth of anatta, of not-self, that nothing is personal, I'm not in control. And with this wisdom, there was a new sense of lightness and openness. And it felt like there was almost literally more room in the heart and the mind for compassion to grow. So in this way, wisdom and compassion become inseparable expressions of the practice. And later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion is expressed as the bodhisattva ideal. Some of you may be familiar with that understanding from the Mahayana and Tibetan traditions and Zen. The Bodhisattva is someone who makes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering. And whether or not this ideal resonates for you personally at this time, I think it's possible to still make the connection that all this practicing we're doing, all this effort isn't just for our own benefit, that it will benefit everyone we come into contact with. So in the spirit of helping us to connect with that sense of uh, aspiration, I'd like to close with a few lines from the Shanti Shantideva's guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. And apparently this is a text that His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. And it's a whole book, so I'll just read a few phrases for it to get a sense of its uh, orientation. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine. And may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.